This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. Great hearing that music from Java. Thank you, Java. That's right. Very Good cool. Very cool. How are you, Mal? I am well, thank you. It's been a, a fun week and an interesting weekend. I took a little drive up to northeast Mississippi, uh, took in Oxford, Boonville, Corinth, up to uh, Pickwick Lake, over into the Tennessee uh, side of the border, uh, had some catfish at the Catfish Hotel. Got a caramel cake in New Albany, which you know in New Albany there's uh, there are two caramel Sugary. cakes that that are r- rivals. <laughs> there's Sugarees, and then there is West Side Barbecue, and there are people uh-huh. who get their caramel cakes from West Side Barbecue, and people who get their caramel cakes from Sugarees. I have long been a Sugarees uh, patron, but on this road trip, I stopped at West Side out of curiosity got a caramel cake and took it to Boonville and it was mighty fine. Uh, I, I will not say which I'll prefer. I'll just say that Mississippi has two great caramel cake makers uh, in the new Albany, Mississippi area. And if you have a favorite, call us and tell us about it. What about you, Carol? Well, Mal, first of all, let me say that sounds like a quarantine jailbreak. <laughs> it was my second, it was my second time to leave my house since March uh, the 11th. Uh, the first time I went down to the coast for uh, a drive down and drive back. And this time I drove up, uh, as I described, uh, to Oxford and from Oxford over to Boonville, spent uh, a couple of nights up there with a friend's house, in a friend's house, visited, uh, socially distanced, visited with a number of old friends, uh, did a lot of riding around and reminiscing. Had a good trip, and uh, I was as safe as I could be, mask on, hands washed, socially distanced, and I certainly hope that we didn't pick up any uh, bad voodoo on the way. Yeah, no cooties. Well, we're still laying low uh, out in Edwards, uh, and it was a beautiful but very hot weekend, and I did quite a bit of cooking, but it, it was all over the map. Yeah. Well, nothing wrong with that. Well, I know. On Thursday, I, I murdered some pears into pear mm. preserves. It it was inedible. I mean, the it, the goo was so thick. Oh, you know, no. it didn't look that thick when I put it in the jars, but you could hardly hardly get it out of the jar. So that was my fail. But mm. my my good things were I did a rustic peach tart, a little individual peach tart. Beautiful. Um, did some beautiful fresh snapper with some corn fritters. Ah, which was yeah. They're little little corn cakes. I don't know if you call them fritters. <laughs> and then to top it off, yesterday 
I cooked lunch for John, and I posted it on our Facebook page, Cooking and Coping. And I must say, other than the mayonnaise wars, I have never gotten so many comments. And <laughs> I made John what he's really been craving all these years, a fried Spam sandwich. I saw that. Good gracious. Oh, he was so happy. But he's always talking about how you know, they used to go fishing out on the Gulf and how much fun it is just taking some beer and Spam sandwiches. And so right. I, I made a grown man happy yesterday. Well, but, and that's a beautiful it, thing. It brought out a lot of repressed feelings that people have about Spam. There's a lot of, yeah. a lot of Spam craving going on. Well, it, I guess it's sort of a yearning for the good old days or a, a, yeah. a time that has now passed. And uh, I I'll didn't tell you. Know how, how many people were doing spam and eggs now. And uh, do, do you know Tom and Casey Beck? Yes. Maybe live in your hood. Uh, yes, they were having well. spam on the grill yesterday. I mean, so who knew? They, vote, they photographed our wedding, Tara and I's wedding. Quick pear story. While I was in Boonville, my friend Bill Barnett told me that a friend of his brought him a half a bushel of pears to his house, and he was so excited. But they were all green, and he put them out to ripen, and he tried every technique he ever grew up knowing to get his pears to ripen. Put an apple in the bag, put a banana in the bag, put them in a dark place, put them in a brown paper sack, and he said those pears never ripened and therefore he never got to make his signature pear preserves well those are the same kind of pears i believe that we have out in out in edwards the only ripeness that you ever see or the only color change sometimes is just a little pinkness but the the fruit is is very hard and you have to cook it for a, a long time and I cooked and cooked and cooked, and the pears didn't get <laughs> soft, but the syrup got hard. Oh, well. All right, we got a caller. Stafford Sheridan is on the phone. Stafford is one of our regular featured uh, callers. Stafford uh, is known for his uh, service station food critiques and his blog. What's going on, Stafford? You know, I am the man on the street. <laughs> <laughs> yes, you are. <laughs> So today, uh, well, first of all, tell us how your, uh, your review of, of, of gas station uh, eateries is going in the pandemic. Well, you know, we, we didn't do any for a while, but believe it or not, I just released episode 60. And wow. It was, a, uh, it was off a recommendation from when I was on the show last time. It was King Chicken and Tupelo, and I gave it the, the highest rating I've given anything so far. So your listeners have great, uh, great taste. Okay, and say again, it's cane chicken or king? King. King. Just like King chicken. King chicken. fried chicken. That's right. Stafford, tell us about the legendary Mississippi culinary uh, sauce, the Hoover sauce from Louise, Mississippi. So, you know, I, I drove down to Louise. Actually, we were going to do some filming with those guys down there. And, uh, of course, we all know the sad news that uh, Mr. Hoover Lee passed away a couple of weeks ago. So we were planning on going back and, and interviewing the sons once again and putting that on our on our blog. 
but there's just they've got this incredible Asian American story. Hoover Lee's dad came over to work in Tunica, Mississippi, from China in the early 1900s and was planning on going to Chicago and heard that there was a guy in Louise, a Chinese-American, that wanted to go back to China, and he went and took the store over in Louise in 1917, and that family's owned it ever since. And, you know, when you think about Chinese-American stories, Chinese-Americans weren't readily accepted in the South. And that took a while. Somewhere around the 60s or 70s, Hoover Lee got on the fire department. He ended up running for alderman, ended up becoming mayor of Louise. And during that time, when he would go to these fire department barbecues, he would bring this sauce. And everybody started asking for Hoover's sauce. And so he started making it, selling it in the store. And today they sell it nationwide. So it's a great American success story. And, and a great Mississippi uh, trademark. And, and I read uh, one place where he said that what he was shooting for was the flavor of roasted Cantonese duck in this sauce. So if you get a bottle of Hoover sauce, know that it was created to mimic the flavor of roasted Cantonese duck. It is the perfect balance of salty and sweet. And it goes with literally, I've even mixed it with olive oil and used it as a salad dressing. I mean, it's so, it's so versatile. And we, we know, know that it has soy sauce. To, it. Yeah, but you used to have to kind of bootleg it. So it, it's really wonderful that you can buy it in, in the stores now. Well, I think the cottage laws are he could sell it out of his own store. And, yeah. could, and he didn't have to go through a lot of the hoops that you have to. But when he started wholesaling it, that changed things a little bit, and you have to do it a little bit differently. So they shut out for a while to be geared up for wholesale, and now they're wholesaling. So you can go and you can actually buy it in our store in Drew, and you can buy it all over. Uh, I see it all over. I see it in tractor supply places. Uh, I know that Air wow. Delta carries it, so you know which is uh, which is the uh, Case IH dealer in the Delta. So it's everywhere. Well, Stafford, tell our listeners once again how they can follow your blog on your service station uh, reviews and uh, how they can find you and keep in touch with you. So I'm literally on every kind of social media, and it's at Stafford Sheridan, my name. And it's Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, um, YouTube. We're on all those, and I'm always looking for suggestions. So I go all over the state. I've been all the way to the coast, all the way up to Memphis, over to Tupelo and Columbus and and everywhere in between. So I'm always looking for new places to try out. So check me out. Well, man, we appreciate you listening. We appreciate you calling in and being a guest on the show. And Absolutely. we really love the work that you're doing out there in the fields. This service station uh, uh, cuisine is, is a Mississippi phenomenon that needs to be uh, curated, and you're doing a great job. Well, it's a lot of fun doing it. All right, we got a caller, right? We got a caller. Is it Janice Java? I think it's Becky. Becky. Hello, Becky. You're on the you're on the line. Well, hey there. How are y'all this morning? Super good. How about you're you? You're good. Oh, I'm doing great. I just wanted to call and say how blessed I am. I'm uh, originally from New Iberia, Louisiana, and my mother uh, I lost my mother when I was young, but she kept me in the kitchen. And uh, we had a lot of good food. 
she had a lot of recipes in the Bayou Art Gallery cookbook, and uh, we were just, we lived in the kitchen. But I met, I fell in love with Jeb Stewart and when I was at LSU, and we got wow. married. And um, one uh, summer, he was playing in Russia, and so I went to stay with his parents in Becker, Mississippi. And I had so much fun that summer. I learned about shelling purple whole peas and canning and, um, you know, all the good stuff that Mississippi has. And and Mississippi gets a bad rap because, you know, I love my Cajun heritage. I love my Cajun food. But I didn't have any chicken and dumplings or piccalilli or caramel cake growing up. And those are the things that, I mean, you can't beat it. And I've been looking for some a good piccalilli recipe because I know how to. Make, I do the peas, I do the cornbread like she showed me in the um, in the uh, black iron skillet. I melt my butter first, and then I get my uh, my sunflower cornmeal, and I do it the old way like she showed, like Jeff's mother shows me. And that generation is is leaving us. So, um, you know, we just need to make sure that we keep both the Louisiana and the Mississippi heritage going. My daughter was an old Miss Rebelette, and I had to go and, and go to all the games, even though I'm an LSU fan. So we're, um, we're together, but the food is so different. Like the catfish houses, I never went to a catfish house. Um, I never grew up drinking sweet tea. And so um, these are the things that ha- I've been in Mississippi now longer than I was in Louisiana. So I'm kind of a half and half. <laughs> but I'm half and half tea it. with lemon, which is the way we yeah. like them. Well, yeah. Becky, we sure do appreciate you listening to the show and calling in this morning. We're going to take a quick break here. When we come back, we have our special guest today, Alexander Smalls. His latest cookbook is entitled Meals, Music, and muses recipes from my african-american kitchen they combine his two great passions music and food with each chapter in the book being dedicated to a different genre of music it is filled with great southern recipes so we'll talk to chef smalls about his south carolina roots and his fascinating life please stay tuned Hey, this is Larry Morrissey with the Mississippi Arts Commission. I'm one of the hosts of the Mississippi Arts Hour, the arts interview show on Think Radio. Each week, myself or one of my fellow hosts bring you in-depth interviews with different creative Mississippians. We talk with visual artists, musicians, writers, as well as people who help bring the arts to their communities. We hear about how each artist learned their craft and get some insight into their creative process. You can hear the Arts Hour every Sunday at 5 p.m. on Think Radio, or listen anytime by subscribing to the show through your favorite podcasting app. You're listening to Deep South Dining right here on MPB Think Radio. Malcolm White here with Carol Puckett. This is the show all about the culture of Southern flavor. And man, do we have a flavor for you this morning. Carol, do the honors and introduce our very special guest this morning. Thank you, Mal. Our guest today has led a much celebrated life. His first act was as an opera singer for which he holds the highest accolades, including a Tony Award and a Grammy Award. But now he's known as a chef and restaurateur who brought low country cooking to New York. One of the most interesting people we have had on the show, Chef Alexander Smalls. Good morning. 
Good morning. Nice to be with both of you. <laughs> well, thank you. Um, your new book is entitled Meals, Music, and Music and Muses, and it combines all the different facets of your life. Um, I know that it was just released in late February at the beginning of the COVID pandemic, yes. which, which is not exactly auspicious timing for a book. But like you do on, in everything, you have turned lemons into lemon pie, and we <laughs> want to know about your experience of promoting the book to the world. <laughs> Icebox lemon pie. Yeah. <laughs> With, with high meringue. With high yeah. meringue. <laughs> scorched to perfection. Indeed. Torched and scorched. <laughs> so, so you're a man with, with a Tony, an Emmy, I mean a Tony, a Grammy, and a James Beard Award. Emmy coming. <laughs> Emmy coming. <laughs> Just, just wait. Just do wait. <laughs> <laughs> so tell us about uh, how how the faux pandemic book tour is uh, has gone. I, I was just fascinated with how you told me you're promoting the book. Well, you know, it's it's really incredible. Um, I had just geared up. Uh, the, um, I'd done some appearances in um, Washington, D.C. at the Swiss Embassy prior to the book coming out. An incredible uh, sort of pre-party uh, um, that they threw for me um, with so many of the restaurateurs in D.C. And we kind of had a town meeting at the Swiss Embassy. Um, and uh, the chef there prepared so many dishes from the book was very excited, very thrilled, uh, came back to New York to embark on this tour uh, simultaneously with the release on the 24th, and absolutely everything stopped with respect to that tour. But unknown to me, I would embark on a Zoom podcast, radio, um, uh, Instagram live bonanza um, and it hasn't stopped. I mean, I'm I'm talking about this book and myself uh, once or twice a week. Uh, it's it's really it makes you think that well, you know, had I physically been able to go to these places, people wouldn't have had the same interest. I don't know, <laughs> but it's exciting. That's great. See, so you've pivoted. Uh, unlike so many yeah, people, you yeah, you've pivoted and it's what we're and, all about. And you you got it going on. I'd like yeah. to know a little bit about your uh, your early life growing up in South Carolina, Spartanburg. Tell me a little bit about your family, the Smalls family table, and how you uh, acquired an interest in food and cooking, as well as music, of course. Well, thank you. Um, you know, interesting family in that um, I grew up in Spartanburg, South Carolina, but. My family's roots were in Charleston, Buford, and the Gullah Islands. Uh, my grandfather um, uh, essentially was of several generations who came from that area. And uh, he moved, uh, because of work, the family from Charleston to Spartanburg uh, before I was born. But what I was born into was a low country household. 
in upcountry. Spanberg was considered upcountry, Charleston and Beaufort, low country. And so at my house, we ate different food than all of my friends. <laughs> it was a whole cultural expression that centered around food and music. So I grew up playing uh, the piano and uh, acting out skits, um, you know, uh, uh, for the family. I was inspired by uh, my aunt and uncle. My aunt was a classical pianist and my uncle was a chef. Uh, they were a part of the Harlem Renaissance and lived in Harlem for many years. And when I was born, they literally, uh, having not had any kids of their own, and I was the first and as it turned out, only son, they literally moved back to Spartanburg to be a part of my education. And it really starts from them because they gave me food and music and uh, the cultural um, literature of the Harlem Renaissance, Langston Hughes, um, Madam C.J. Walker, and all of these extraordinary uh, people that, uh, as well as all these Italian opera stars like Renata Tobaldi, Birgit Nielsen, Maria Callas. And if you can imagine a little black boy growing up in a one-horse town um, uh, in the South, running around singing opera and reciting <laughs> Shakespeare sonnets, there you have my childhood. <laughs> uh, wow, it's a great image. <laughs> Alexander and I discovered something very interesting. We have... Uh, 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 something very special in common, and that is that we both attended Converse College in Spartanburg, South Carolina. <laughs> at the at the same time, at so the same at the time. Same, so we are somewhat of classmates, but Converse right. had a very famous music school <laughs> at the time, and although it was a women's college, uh, men were admitted in the music school. And so there you go. My, my, actually, our freshman and sophomore years I know, we well, walking you know, to Cal, Actually, I was the first transfer student from Wofford College, which was the all men's school, to attend Converse Music Department. But roll it back just a little further, when I was at Spartan High, Converse had a pre-college program. And so two years before college, I was also in the Converse pre-college uh, um, uh, music uh, program, studying wow. with uh, with some extraordinary people over there, including Cal Rolandi. Do you remember oh, Cal Rolandi? Ab absolutely. <laughs> I, I went I went back through my Converse annuals, and y'all have to understand, Converse was about seven hundred people. It's not that this is a you know huge university. And I was looking at some of the programs that we had on stage and uh, Bertrand Nielsen was one of the stars that yes. came, that came to to Twitchell Auditorium. I was so, there. Uh, me too. <laughs> <laughs> Y'all may be cousins and just have a connection. We actually could could be, but um, after college, well, I know you went to North North Carolina School of the Performing Arts, but you attended one of the most prestigious music schools in the world, you know, Curtis Institute of Music. So tell tell us about that transition from deep south 
Spartanburg life to Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Wow. Well, you know, huh. Um, I was following my passion. I mean, the, I, I have to say that the greatest gift my parents gave me was um, never saying no. I mean, if you can imagine uh, my poor parents raising their son through education who was going to be uh, possibly the, the first black president, but certainly not an <laughs> opera singer. And, and so, uh, I mean, they didn't know what to do with that. No one they knew was an opera singer. And all the images of a black opera singer were of women, Marian Anderson, Leontine Price, and it was exceptional in, in every way. But they hadn't seen a black male opera singer, and they certainly uh, didn't see that as work. Uh, th their big thing was, if you, if my parents were here right now, my mother's whole thing used to be, you know, people would say, you must be so proud of your son. She says, I, I am. Uh, he's uh, sang everywhere, but I wish he'd get a job. I just, like, <laughs> I just want him to have a job. <laughs> and so, so, so you have to really understand the, the where I came from. Uh, and so they paid for all these music lessons. I had private, uh, I turned my bedroom into a music studio and I had teachers from Converse that would come over and, and, and play the piano and, and tutel me. And so I then leave on my way to Philadelphia. My parents are still wondering, this boy's gonna be overeducated, but still have no job. And, you know, I got to Philadelphia and it was uh, it was such an extraordinary transition, um, not just with respect to geography, but also the intensity of city living. There I was, a, a little boy from the South who had managed to get himself an apartment um, and a piano, because Curtis gives you a piano, a baby grand piano for your wow. if your apartment is big enough for it to get in. I mean, you know, I've been known to sleep under pianos uh, <laughs> when there wasn't enough room. So, uh, <laughs> I mean, I was like Mary Tyler Moore, if you know what I mean. <laughs> there I was, you know, city life, you know, in a high rise with a view. Um, wow. It was tremendous. And it, it, it really started the cultivation of of the cultural part of classical music and sort of the sophistication that went with it. You know, Curtis thought that musicians were not cultured. Um, and, and Curtis, as you know, was this very, very private um, uh, school. Essentially, if you got in, everything was paid for. Uh, the year I applied, they accepted uh, 10 people out of 600 applicants. Um, it was a very uh, sterile environment. So we had Curtis teas every Wednesday and they would always bring in um, some, uh, you know, a big star that was appearing with the Philadelphia uh, Philharmonic or, or someone to overly impress us. So I'm in, t in line for tea one day and who is meeting and greeting uh, the students as we come in is Joan Sutherland. Wow. Now, I had seen Joan Sullivan on Ed Sullivan's show <laughs> and, 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 and Marilyn Horn. So they were idols of mine. So there she was, Joan Sutherland, pouring wow, tea wow. and greeting me. Uh, 
it, it was life changing. That's what well, I know that pouring tea and all the social graces that they taught at Cur Curtis uh, benefited you in your years of living in Europe. But um, I want to know what what was your break, your big break into the world of professional music? My big break came. Uh, there was a young woman from Spartanburg, South Carolina, who uh, I think also at one point went to Converse. Um, she was at the Philadelphia uh, uh, School of the Arts, and her name was Laurie. She had tickets for Porgy and Bess, the Houston Grand Opera production, which I later joined. But she had tickets, and her date had stood her up. And she called me and said, I have an extra ticket. Do you want to go? Well, starring in this production was a woman by the name of Clama Dale, who uh, was an incredible soprano. And when I was a student at the North Carolina School of the Arts, I'd gone to New York to host some, um, to uh, uh, audition at some schools, and it was her piano that I slept under. So now she was the star of the opera. So I said, yes, I'm going, I'm going. It was amazing. After the opera, I went back to, uh, you know, fought my way backstage and saw her. She invited me to the cast party. I went to the cast party. She introduced me as a very talented opera singer. And really, at that point, she'd never heard me sing. She just assumed I was. And they asked me to audition. I did, and they offered me uh, a lead role in, uh, in Porky and Bess. And after negotiating with my Israeli vocal teacher, Ed Curtis, who was very much against it, um, she said I could go for six weeks. Well, two and a half years later. <laughs> <laughs> <clears throat> my big break. <laughs> well, tell us uh, quickly about your transition from music to food uh, and how you, I know you sang professionally for a number of years and then you yeah. ended up in the restaurant business. Well, okay. Um, in the most simple, uh, simplest way, um, I hit the glass ceiling. I mean, essentially, it has always been extraordinarily difficult for African-American men to break through in opera, uh, with the exception of Germany, um, uh, which is what most black men had to do in order to have a career. Um, uh, you simply couldn't get beyond Porgy and Bess or Old Man River in the mainstream of opera in this country. And so after living in Paris for many years, uh, studying at the Paris Opera House, studying cooking at La Varenne, because those two, <laughs> at that point, you know, cooking and uh, uh, food and music was so entwined, um, they were like, you know, it's like having two mistresses. And so I, I flew back to New York, thanks to my very good friend Kathleen Battle, who had arranged yet another audition for me at the Met, which at this point was my third and I came in and um, uh, I sang for the, well, I was being represented by Columbia Artists uh, Management at the time. That was the major uh, management company. Uh, I sang an, uh, an aria and usually they ask you to start another one and they stop you and then they discuss. Uh, they asked me for another aria. I sang two arias. And then they asked for something else, and I started that, and I finished it. And they said to me, um, well, you sound great. You've made a lot of progress. 
uh, we can see how the studying in Italy uh, and in France has improved you. And, you know, we'd love to offer you a contract um, in the Porgy and Best Production we're putting together. And, and we'd like to offer you chorus and some bit roles. Now, keep in mind, I've been critically acclaimed in a principal role. And that's how I ended up with the Grammy and Tony. And they were offering me crumbs on the table. So I said I would not be interested and uh, defiantly left the building. <laughs> it was a grand exit. <laughs> and I, I literally went home. I had brought with me a fabulous bottle of, um, uh, of red wine from uh, France. That was when you used to be able to um, sneak in. Security playing, yeah. I did that. <laughs> and, um, and I finished up that bottle. And the next morning, I decided I was going to be a restaurateur. <laughs> Just like and that. <laughs> 18 months later, I was opening my first restaurant, which was the first uh, fine dining African-American restaurant uh, specializing in African-American food in New York, 1994. That's All right. it. That's Five beautiful. restaurants later. <laughs> That's beautiful. We're going to take a break now, and when we come back, we'll continue to talk to Chef Alexander Smalls, whose latest cookbook, Meals, Music, and Muses, Recipes from My African-American Kitchen, ties together his passion and love for music and the great Southern recipes that have filled the award-winning restaurants throughout the years that he has owned and operated. We'll be back with more Alexander Smalls after this break, so please stay tuned. Listening to the sophisticated Deep South Dining right here on MPB Think Radio. Malcolm White with Carol Puckett. And our very special guest today, award-winning singer, musician, chef, and cookbook author, Alexander Smalls. Welcome back, Chef. Thank you. We want to give a shout out to Ruth from Brookhaven, who called in during our last segment and says she is so taken by Chef Small's story that she is gonna end the broadcast, go straight to the bookstore, and buy the book. The book is entitled Meals, Music, and the Muses, Recipes from My African-American Kitchen by Alexander Smalls. Welcome back, Chef. Thank you. Thank you. We were just talking about your first venture uh, as, as a restaurant, and that was Cafe Beulah. Right. And you had some pretty impressive friends and investors in that first venture. Tell us about that. Yes. Well, you know, I, I think that, um, you know, that day, 18 months ago, that I decided I was going to open a restaurant, um, I then had to figure out how I was going to pay for it. And, and I also, um, along the way, had to figure out uh, how to run it. Um, <laughs> And everything about it. So, I mean, you know, coming from a family of chefs and cooks uh, on both sides of my family, uh, the kitchen I was no stranger to. Uh, I knew good food. Uh, as an opera singer, I traveled all over the world, went to the finest restaurants. 
So uh, essentially my palate was right and ready, but I had to figure out how I was going to do all of this and, and ultimately pay for it. So, um, you know, I started out on this journey of, of going around talking about it to everybody who would listen. I got everyone excited. I was a great salesperson. Um, but essentially, uh, how did I go from a conversation to a real restaurant? So a friend of mine said to me one day, well, you know, you, you really need to put together a business proposal. And, uh, and I thought, okay, well, what's that exactly? A short story on how, what I'm going to do. He says, well, kind of, um, uh, here, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to uh, uh, give you a business proposal so you can see what it's like. But there's this incredible book that you have to buy in Columbia University bookstore that really gives you insight on how to write a business proposal. So self-taught and full of passion and determination, um, I went to the bookstore. Uh, the first thing that happened, uh, we're talking uh, early 90s, and this book with no photos uh, <laughs> uh, cost $100. Uh, and, you know, needless to say, I mean, I was mining my pennies at that point. But, you know, something went unpaid. I got this book, and I really uh, taught myself uh, how to write a business proposal. So um, uh, some friends looked it over, and I was back out there pushing and had the business proposal. Then I discovered I still didn't have what I needed to close the deal. I needed a subscription agreement, which basically meant, uh, you know, sort of a letter of engagement. How do you invest and how do uh, we divorce in case I don't want you anymore? So got all of that worked out and then tried to go to banks and money lenders and all kinds of people and uh, no success. Uh, so what I understood at that point is that I had to turn to friends and family, which is what I did. And um, I had some pretty uh, interesting, impressive, high-powered friends, uh, I'm happy to say. Uh, and two of my dearest friends, two women uh, who I treasure and um, I have known at least 30 years. Uh, the first one that wrote a check was Toni Morrison, the great author, uh, Auntie Tony, she basically um, uh, threw her hat in the ring, and then Felicia Rashad. Uh, and, uh, and then I was able to get Percy Sutton, who at the time owned WBLS and also the Apollo Theater. Um, and uh, I attracted some more money, and I was set. I didn't raise enough, but I raised enough, if you know what I mean. Jeff, I, I recently watched uh, a documentary on uh, Toni Morrison, and she was a heck of a cake baker, wasn't she? Wasn't that part of her sort of entree to a lot of parties and with a lot of friends? She never came here with a cake. She left it to you to do the cake. She left lots of cakes. Her favorite was uh, the seven-layer coconut cake we make in the South. And between that and my mother's bread and butter pickles, anytime I had them, all I had to do is call her, and she was here. <laughs> I don't think she cooked. Um, <laughs> that was this part of her that story. <laughs> yeah. Uh, oh well. Well, uh, through the years, you have you've owned several restaurants. Uh, 
I know that the Cecil was actually named by Esquire magazine as best new restaurant in America. That was in 2014, I believe. But one thing I really wanted to ask you about the Cecil is what does it mean to be an Afro-Asian American restaurant? Well, um, it means that uh, uh, taking a shower one day, that was the name I came up with. (laughs) (laughs) No, you know, um, the Cecil was really founded on the, essentially, the footprint of enslaved African people on five continents. How through slavery, Africa changed the global culinary conversation. So after I had my first three restaurants were all uh, based on low country cooking, which I call Southern Revival cooking. And uh, I took a 10 year hiatus, uh, in which time I traveled extensively. And I started to think about um, the uh, low country cooking beyond uh, America and where its roots was and and how the African palate developed. And so uh, when Dick Parsons um, and I, Dick Parsons, uh, the ex-chairman of Citibank and also um, the CEO of Time Warner, when we decided that we were going to do something in the Harlem community, reopen Minton's and the Cecil, um, I wanted a really a bigger conversation about um, African-American food, uh, the food of the African diaspora. So I set out to research, um, essentially using the route of the slave trade to uh, basically um, garner the the footprint of Africans on five continents. And that included an African, an Asian, uh, uh, European and American experience. So that's how I came up with the name Afro-Asian American Cooking to inform and influence um, and identify what the food was about at, uh, at the Cecil. Well, I know that this is like being asked to choose your favorite child, but which, are, which of those restaurants, which would you say was closest to your heart? Wow. Well, I mean, you know, I would have to say I had to choose the first and last. I certainly couldn't pick one. Uh, but the first, Cafe Bulo, really uh, essentially laid the foundation and rescued me, um, you know, from uh, uh, an uphill battle in classical music. Um, and uh, the Cecil, because essentially it was the, uh, the fullness of a life's work. Uh, it was sort of the, the jewel and the crown uh, because I was able to not only tell the story of low country cooking, of Southern cooking, I was able to tell the world where it came from and how those um, uh, endangered people uh, influenced the world culturally and culinarily. Well, you know, we've talked, uh, we're, we really haven't talked about the book itself and it is such a, a beautiful book and it's organized the chapters are like jazz spiritual gospel T- tell us your thought your thinking behind the concept and what those chapters what the music how you paired the music with the food well um 
always uh, say that if you've lived long enough and done a whole bunch of things, <laughs> you put yourself in a position to finally have not only opinions, but a, a point of view, a perspective. Um, Meals, Music, and Muses is really uh, my opportunity to share with uh, the world um, through the most influential uh, uh, lenses of my life, which have been music and food. Uh, my whole life has been lived um, really in, in, in the seams of music and food. Um, and so I wanted people to be fully immersed in that whole experience. And one of the best ways uh, we came up to do that was to essentially create music chapters that best described uh, my own personal evolution. Um, so that's kind of how it all came together. Um, I have Wynton Marsalis, who wrote the, uh, the foreword to my first book, Grace the Table, uh, to, to thank for, he used to say all the, all the time that I cook like a jazz musician. Um, you know, a little of this, a little of that, and everything improvised. And most of my friends know that I'm the type of chef who never makes the same thing twice. So essentially... Um, you, if you say, can you make what you what we had last time at your house? No, I cannot. Because I don't want to do it. <laughs> you know, thank God for a cookbook. So, so this was a real act of discipline to put recipes in a cookbook. <laughs> it always is. This is my third cookbook. And trust me, it's one of the hardest things to do. Um, because I cook by vibration and inspiration. I have to be inspired to cook, which is why I'm a chef. Who has a chef? Ah, <laughs> okay. Because when you come back to that restaurant looking for that barbecue duck, that mustard barbecue duck, then somebody has to make that for you the way you had it the last time. I wouldn't be that person. <laughs> Correct. Well, I love the chapter uh, you called divas. I love the whole thought of that. She said the, a diva is really the main course, the showy food. Right. The, Big, Big plate stuff. food. <laughs> like, like a diva. And I've known lots of them. So <laughs> I consider myself an expert on diva plate. <laughs> <laughs> that could be a genre all to itself. Yeah. Diva, diva plate. But let me say this, share this with you. Because uh, what was extraordinary for me was the gospel chapel uh, chapter. This is that moment that I spent with my grandfather in his garden and learning about the rituals of farming, learning about um, the African-American um, history and legacy of farming in this country. And as my grandfather was a farmer of many, many, many generations, um, this is where I garnered and understood the respect for food and for being able to grow and harvest and understanding how that mirrors our lives. Um, so it, 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 the book really will take you on a journey and there's so much there for people to hold on to and even re recreate the experiences by cooking the recipes. Now you have these New York City legendary Sunday brunches. Describe those and please explain to Java how he can get an invitation. How do you know about those legends? 
Now we've we've been checking up on you. I know. We we heard that it's it's really good to be your friend and <laughs> you know and that you may just be well, let's just say I never eat alone, right? <laughs> <laughs> Maybe so, breakfast. <laughs> so what would Java have to do have to do and what would you serve him? <laughs> He's very I'll musical. Get back to Java about all the things he has to do. But clearly, <laughs> if he makes it through the door, uh, you know, he's in for a treat. Uh, I usually start my my um, my Sunday mornings off very ritualistic. You know, after uh, either before or after I watch CBS Sunday Morning, which is my favorite show. Uh, then I'm often running to. Uh, some select markets that I love. I love independent, small, family-owned markets. And uh, I go up to the Russian Delicatessen, which is on the Hudson, um, uh, just up in, up up uh, uptown in, in Manhattan, and Washington Heights is called. And I get my imported teas and my smoked fish um, uh, and... and uh, Russian dumplings and things like that, which I, I love. And then there is a sort of Latin um, gourmet store that is probably the size of my living room, but it is packed with some of the most extraordinary things and fresh goods. And I get those things and I come home and I just start cooking. So there's usually like one big dish, big casserole or something. Uh, it might be the mac and cheese from the book that I infuse with wilted greens, uh, like baby kale or spinach, or I may put a whole lot of uh, jumbo crab. Well, we've run out of time, but man, oh. could we could we go on and on and on. <laughs> we want to thank our very special guest today, Chef Alexander Smalls, and his new book is Meals, Music, and Muses, Recipes from My African-American Kitchen, you can pick it up at independent and corporate bookstores. Our show has been a production of Mississippi Broadcasting's Think Radio. And we appreciate each and every one of you tuning in. We're here every Monday morning at 9 for Carol Puckett and for Chef Alexander Smalls. Thank you for tuning in. This is Deep South Dining. We will see you next Monday at 9 a.m. right here on MPB Think Radio.